Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Before we get started for the evening, our editor, Scott Silk, Ask me to mention that Tales to Terrify is looking for a few new female narrators. In particular, women who are from New Zealand or Australia, or who know how to speak German. All you need to join our cast of volunteer narrators are a good reading voice, a microphone, and a quiet recording space. Then, record a minute or so of yourself reading, and send it to talestoterrify at gmail.com. It's that easy. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, let's get back on the road. This week we're traveling the highways of Kansas. Not far from Wichita, the largest city in the state, we find the city of Hutchinson, best known for its salt mines and for hosting the annual Kansas State Fair. Hutchinson has plenty of attractions to keep you busy. One of which is the Sand Hills State Park. Sure, unsurprisingly, it has some sandy hills. But the park also has sweeping fields of grasses, sloughs and marshes, and forests full of birds and other animals, all crisscrossed with pathways and hiking trails. But as you venture deeper into the park, following the pathways into the shade of the trees, it might be tempting to wander off the path. The forest isn't that dense, after all. There's plenty of room to explore. There's almost an unnatural pull, like the forest itself is calling you in. But there's another voice, whispering softly in the back of your mind. Feeding your curiosity isn't worth it, it says. You don't want to go in there. Because that's exactly what it wants. Exactly what he wants. You can't see it from the safety of the pathways, but hidden within the forest. Nestled deep within the shadows of Sand Hills Park is a run-down old cabin. 
Its boards are warped and grayed with age, the hinges on the worn door rusty, windows clouded with dust and grime. But despite its ramshackle appearance, it doesn't feel abandoned, doesn't feel empty. There are footprints, fresh ones, coming in and out of the building, and long, shallow scrapes in the hard earth, what look like drag marks. And that's when you notice the silence. The birds have stopped singing, and the endless buzz of the insects has ceased. All you can hear is the rustling of leaves in the breeze, and a single heavy footfall behind you as your world goes black. You're about to feed a lot more than your curiosity, it seems. When you wake up inside the cabin, if you're lucky enough to wake up at all, that is, the first thing that hits you is the smell. A thick, heavy odor, metallic, rancid with rot, and yet somehow sweet. There's a large man in the corner of the cabin who appears to be sharpening something with a high-pitched swing, swing, a knife or a hook. He stands at what looks like a butcher's table, at the end of which is a large steel machine, crusted black with old gore. The largest, filthiest meat grinder you've ever seen. Your eyes widen as the man turns to you. Dark strands of greasy hair hang limp from his head as his mangled face splits in a predatory yellow grin. Aside from the slash of his mouth and piercing bright crazed eyes, he has almost no recognizable facial features. Whether from fire or from scarring, it's hard to tell. But his entire face looks as though it's already been through the meat grinder his lumpy flesh glistening in angry, raw red. As he shuffles toward you and raises his weapon, one final thought flashes through your mind. I guess that's why they call him the Hamburger Man, you think. The legend of the Hamburger Man of Sand Hills Park has been whispered around the Hutchison area since at least the 1950s. Whether he's man, monster, or a bit of both, is open for debate. But considering how long tales have been told of him abducting and butchering hikers who stray too far from the path, I think it's safe to say that even if he was a living man at one point, he's likely moved into the realm of the ghostly by now. Either way, if you plan to visit the Sandhills Park near Hutchison, Kansas, I'd stay safely on the road well-traveled if I were you. But now... I think it's time we explored some dark pathways of our own. We have one longer tale for you this evening from Bryce Stevens and Rick Kennett. Once upon a time, Bryce Stevens helped edit and illustrate horror magazines Blood Songs, Terror Australis, and Severed Head. Jacobite Books published his Fear Codex, Australian Encyclopedia of Dark Fantasy and Horror CD. Several collections of his horror tales have been published, including Stalking the Demon and Skin Tight. Bryce's stories have, in recent years, been republished in Orb's Greatest Hits 
and the Australian Horror Writers Association anthology, Dead of Night, The Best of Midnight Echo. In 2017, Stevens joined in collaboration with Steve Proposh and Christopher Sequeira to edit a rolling series of Australian Lovecraftian mythos anthologies, Cthulhu Deep Down Under, for IFWG Books Australia. To date, three have been published, with the final anthology due for release in 2019. Currently, the editors have new projects in pre-production. As well, Stevens is readying two new collections of horror-slash-supernatural tales for publication. He lives on a property in rural New South Wales, Australia. You can check out the Lovecraftian anthology at ifwgbooksaustralia.com. Rick Kennett is a lifelong resident of Melbourne, Australia, where he works in the transport industry and has an interest in cemeteries, ghosts, and all things spooky. Some years ago, he traveled to Sydney for the express purpose of spending a whole glorious day wandering Rookwood Necropolis, but still didn't visit all parts of it. Rookwood is the largest cemetery in the Southern Hemisphere, and sixth largest in the world overall. Rick's stories have appeared in Aurealis, Andromeda Spaceways, and Weird Tales, in many anthologies, and on several podcasts, including Cast of Wonders and Pseudopod. The novella In Quinn's Paddock is another Rookwood-inspired story and is available on Amazon. Links to that story and to Rick's website are in the show notes. Children of the Night, feast your ears on Rick Kennett and Bryce Stevens' Rookwood, first published in Aurealis 24, 1999. At 550 acres, Rookwood Necropolis is the largest cemetery in the Southern Hemisphere. It was here just after Easter 1898, with Sydney drifting into one of its prettiest autumns, that we went to bury our unmourned dead. I was on holiday from my occupation as a book cataloger for a large company in Melbourne, taking a sea voyage aboard one of those old-time windjammers which ply the East Coast. She had been loading wool at Sydney's Circular Quay when the second mate Everton, too taken by strong drink late one night, fell down a set of stone steps at the quayside and broke his neck. None of the crew, not even myself, were very sorry at this happenstance. Everton had been a brute of the worst possible type, seeming to go out of his way to make life a misery for the salamon in the Foxalee. There were even whispers that the accident was not as accidental as it had appeared. I was not disposed to dismiss the rumours as idle seaman's gossip, having witnessed some of Everton's brutalities. The salty, wet, knotted rope across the exposed back of seaman, who did not move quick enough for his liking, was a commonplace. And William the cabin boy, and many of the seamen of smaller physique have suffered particularly at his hands. His sadistic leer, which bared a row of rotting teeth, was a characteristic of his... I was not likely ever to forget. Had he died at sea, 
it would have been simply a matter of tilting him off a hatch cover in the traditional manner. But he died ashore, and the captain decided that Everton, whatever else he deserved, was entitled to a dry grave. Later the next day, Everton's remains were placed in a coffin of the cheapest kind, and loaded onto a dray which took it to the receiving house, an imposing gothic structure of sandstone and arches in the center of the city, where the funeral train started for Rookwood Cemetery, several miles to the west. We must have looked an odd sight upon that solemn platform to the other funerals whose mourners were dressed in customary black, three seamen in their cleanest going ashore rig, the first mate with his new cap and frock coat, and I, who had volunteered to make up a necessary fourth when only three from the Focklesea would go, dressed in the captain's borrowed Sunday best. The journey to Rookwood was long and tiresome, as we were flagged down ever and again at suburban stations to entrain other funerals. At length, however, we reached the cemetery, where we were shunted onto a special spur line. We steamed slowly backwards into the grounds, passing graves and monuments on either hand until we pulled into the cool dimness beneath the stone arches and high-pitched roof of Mortuary Station Number 1. We filed out and, following the first mate, who in turn followed the clergyman, carried the coffin along narrow gravel paths. The scent of frangipani hung close about, and the smell of new-mown grass was pleasant. We had proceeded only a short way, when we halted for a few moments by our clergyman's uncertainty of which direction we were to go. I took this opportunity to look about me. The mortuary station was just off to my right, about fifty yards away atop a slight embankment. Steam and smoke rolling from out its mouth made it look like some infernal thing from the pit. It was not an agreeable turn of mind in such a place, and with such business to hand. So I turned my eyes elsewhere. Some way ahead of us that domed roof of some large buildings rose from behind some peeling paperbark trees. I took it to be the top of a small chapel, as it also appeared to have protruding turrets with long thin windows suggestive of a church. In one of those windows I saw a face looking down at us. We began to move again, and I lost sight of dome and turrets, window and face. Behind us the funeral train began its slow hissing roll into the heart of Rookwood. For there were two more mortuary stations to visit in this massive graveyard. Everton's funeral was a simple affair, and soon done. No one lingered by the grave after we had lowered the flimsy coffin down, and the first mate had finished his rather perfunctory reading from his prayer book. We turned away, already trying to forget the dead man while the grave diggers began their work. I told the first mate I intended to take a walk. The tolling of the mortuary station's bell would give me fair warning of the train's departure. So while he and the others made their slow way back to the station, I struck out along the leafy paths towards the domed building I had earlier espied. I came out from amongst the trees and found it standing in its own cleared space, surrounded by a wrought iron fence. Close up, the dome, turrets, slit windows, high circular walls, and massive front door were most impressive. The more so when I realized it was not a church at all, but a tomb. All this architecture for a grave, I marveled, then remembered with a shock the face at its window. I peered up, 
half reluctantly, lest I should see something, but there was no face there now. And it was not difficult to convince myself that there had never been one, but as I circumambulated this extravagant grave, I was suddenly aware of an old man standing nearby, watching me with a squinting intensity. He was thin and angular, with long grey hair and an untidy grey beard. He wore a shabby suit, which may once have been of good cut. His feet were bare, and he carried his hat in the respectful way a man will in the presence of the dead. This ancient tossed it up to me, and with a bow of his head said, What have you seen, young master? I made him a very sharp reply, for I was in no mood to exchange absurdities with the local idiots. He retreated to a distance where he watched me, as I tried to read a bronze pluck affixed to the iron fence. But his continued attention made me distinctly uncomfortable, so that I decided to return to the mortuary station to wait with the rest until the train was ready to return to Sydney. I had gone perhaps less than a dozen paces when he cried out from behind me, The train does not start for the half of an hour, and the burial ground is a pleasant walk for the living on a sunny day. I ignored him. Then he called out, Young master, did you see Mr. Hoffman in the window? At this I stopped and swung round in a daze of astonishment. Hoffman had been the name of the tomb's bronze plaque. Wait, I shouted, for the old man was now hurrying away, unexpectedly spry, down one of the many tree-shaded paths. His words had left me fairly shaken, but as best I could I tore off in pursuit. He had slowed his pace by the time I caught up with him, further down the path. He took my arm in friendly gesture and said, Don't be afraid. I am not so much afraid as surprised, I told him. He smiled toothlessly. What did you see? And what makes you think I have seen anything? I have seen your likes before. They see things in these grounds. Some see Mr. Hoffman who own much in life, and in death does not think different. My companion cackled. He looked sternly at all newcomers. He looked at you that way, did he not? If he is all you see, then you are indeed lucky, because some see... Do you smile, young master? Because some see huge shapes abroad, moving edgeways and mightily through the graves at night, and some see fog, filling the holes and piling out of the wicker shelters and the stone mausoleums, and looking like train steam, but with soft fingers of immense power. And some see the snaking railway lines, all aglow in the midnight. And what do you see? Ah, doors and windows in the open spaces of the dead do they dwell, and you shall know them by their spore and shadow. Yes, their shadow. Is that a quote? I could not keep the quiver from my voice. Despite attempts to sound light, a shadow flickered at the corner of my eye. I turned. Nothing. A rustling sound behind me. With well-disciplined willpower, I remained facing the grinning old man. Yes, I quote, he said. From a work you would not know, sir, for all that you may be a scholar. And what work might that be? He stuck his thumbs in the lapels of his suit and, smiling, raised himself up importantly on tiptoe. I have not yet given it a name. Ah, so you are writing a grimoire, are you? 
with the use of that obscure word, I hoped to judge the true worth of what this greybeard was telling me. In answer, he winked, and nodded in a queer sidelong way as he said, I see I have judged you well, for not one in a thousand would know that word. A grimoire, sir, yes. A book of spells. A history of wonders, evil and sublime. An encyclopedia of things that happen when you are not looking, just as you are not looking behind you now, young sir. Again, I resisted the urge to turn about, but smiled at the thought of my trick rebounding on me. That I, in dropping a word to decry another's character, had had it used to illuminate a side of myself I might have kept hidden. Yes, a grimoire, the old man continued, grinning all the while. A cookbook, if you prefer, or call it what you will. Something clattered, like the scrabbling of tiny claws on marble behind me. This time, I had to turn. Nothing. The old man grabbed my arm. I started violently, pulling free and stepping back a pace. What do you want? I shouted. Then, regaining my composure somewhat, I smoothed my suit coat. The old man approached me again, whispering, You, young master, seem the right man to show my book to. That is, sir, if you are interested. He eyed me quizzically, obviously awaiting an answer. I, in my turn, straightened up, endeavoring to display a kind of superiority over him, for I was still not sure whether I dealt here with a genuine practitioner of magic or the inmate of an insane asylum. Either case could mean dangerous company. I said, I profess an interest in the mysteries, yes, but whether you have anything which may be of interest remains to be seen. The old man cackled, Remains to be seen indeed, young sir. You are not openly credulous, and that is good. If you wish, I will show you. When? In the sanity of the noonday sun, upon the platform of mortuary station number one. Agreed. There. We shall study your grimoire together. Excellent. He said with a touch of glee and took my hand in his gnarled paw, shaking it vigorously. And more. He turned abruptly and tossed it off down the path. I watched him until he stepped off the gravel and disappeared into a dense stand of trees. I returned to Mortuary Station and told the first mate I intended to stay a while and would return to the ship on the next train. Ten minutes later, the funeral train returned from the heart of Rookwood and took the burial party back to Sydney. I waited full of expectation in the shadow of Mortuary Station Number 1, watching the dark-clad mourners and visitors go to and fro amongst the stones, while the melancholy call of the crows sounded from the trees. Yet, for all that the sun shone strongly, I soon grew distinctly chill. Noon came and went. I looked for the old man, but saw him nowhere. The rails shone in the sun, and gleamed and glinted, with a snake between marble, white and stark. Streets of graves stretched out, it seemed forever, but none carried the returning tread of the hermit. Eventually, the realization came creeping that the old man was not going to keep his appointment. I cursed my foolishness for being caught up in this business, with someone who, I could not see in splendid hindsight, was an obvious charlatan. Resigning myself to this misfortune, I cast feelings of annoyance from me, 
and made up my mind that since I was at the cemetery, I might as well enjoy a quiet stroll through its grounds before the arrival of the next funeral train. Taking the path we of Everton's funeral had earlier trod soon had me within sight of the church-like tomb of Mr. Hoffman, the man who owned much in life and in death does not think different. I peered up but saw him nowhere at any of the high windows, so hurriedly turned away again lest his stern visage suddenly appear. The afternoon shadows were beginning to stretch throughout Rookwood as I headed up back towards number one mortuary station. Passengers were beginning to assemble on its platform, though the train itself was nowhere yet in evidence. I continued my stroll, knowing the tolling of the station's steeple bell would give me ample warning. I passed a gaily splashing fountain, and some minutes later found myself following the serpentine meanderings of a highly stylized and decorative man-made watercourse. It was, to be sure, a drain. But here, raised from an item of ugly utility to something approaching the landscaping beauty found in the best European gardens, its brick lining was a vivid red, and ornamental terracotta urns were placed at intervals along its winding length, which, I perceived, followed some old creek bed. It was a pleasing mixture of potter's skill and the pure artistry of line and curve. The water flowed slowly, some three or four feet from the rim of the drain, which in width was slightly more than a big man's shoulder span. It did not take much in the way of idle fancy to envisage that glittering, tranquil steam as a miniature canal and the colourful autumn leaves drifting by as the barges and slim boats of some fairy race. My imagination, running in this vein, may have led me into pleasant daydreams on the warm autumn day. Only the water I saw now had a queer crimson tinge to it. I peered upstream. Here the willows hung down in the watercourse, while on the other side flowering clumps of white hydrangea huddled thick, pushing close to the edge of the drain, putting a tight grip on my nerves, and a willow branch. I lifted it aside to reveal what was beneath. Nothing could have prepared me for what I found. The old man, with whom I had hoped to meet, lay face up in the water. His teeth were clamped together in a death grim, and the eyes were staring wide, holding a look between terror and wonder. I started back, tripped and landed on my rear at the edge of the serpentine drain. I gasped and cried aloud as a brick gave way and I fell into the cold water, landing hard beside the dead man. With a shiver of repulsion, I propelled myself away from the corpse, then sat there soaking wet with the water rising to my chest. Slowly my courage and nerve returned, and I stood, splashing over to the body. I could see no wounds, but noticed the blood was issuing forth from beneath. It occurred to me that, perchance, he had slipped and fallen into the drain, unluckily landing on some sharp object projecting from the water. I gently turned him over. He was light and lifted easily. In fact, he was so light, I was taken by the notion that he was an empty shell. Then I saw he was but an empty shell. I pushed the body from me with an animal cry and began to tremble violently. I had seen right into the body of the old man. I had spied the glistening red wetness of his backbone and saw that he was hollow. 
I sat there at the bottom of the drain where no sunlight reached, trembling sick to the pit of my stomach with fear and disgust. My mind was numb. To all but one word it repeated endlessly, and the word was scooped. I must have sat there in the drain, staring at the gruesome remains for some time, crazed into stupefaction by fear and revulsion. When at length I came out of my thoughts, I believed I was a little mad, smiling, grinning, giggling unawares, thinking only to put distance between myself and the red horror. I reached for a handful of willow branches, drooping over the brick-lined lip above, and began to climb out. I was halfway towards extracting myself and had glimpsed the sun low in the sky when the thin branch snapped, and I was once again headed for a soaking at the bottom of that damnable drain. I landed heavily, and my ankle twisted beneath me, spearing pain up my leg. There, half submerged in a cemetery drain accompanied by an inexplicably hollowed-out body, I floundered and splashed, called and yelled, but the close walls of the drain mocked me with echoes. So I saved my breath at last. But now it was nearing sunset. The sky overhead was a long slit of deepening blue, and what treetops I could see were touched with warm, golden light. Here in the drain it was cold and growing dark, but at least my mind was working again, clearer perhaps from the shock of the fall. My hands and head stung where I had grazed them against the brickwork, and my ankle throbbed abominably. Any thought of moving brought thoughts of renewed pain. Yet, if I stayed where I was, I would surely die, either through exposure, drowning, or by the return of the fiend who had done for the old man in so macabre fashion. This last was another reason I had ceased calling for help, for I was pretty sure the last of the funerals had long since gone, and the prospect of attracting the wrong sort of attention preyed on my mind. I would save myself. The only way out I saw now was not up but along, for if I followed the red-tinted water, it would eventually lead me out into a stream or creek. Raising myself up on my good leg, I conducted, in a gloom that was not unlike my state of mind, the hideous business of negotiating my way around the corpse. As I did so, I accidentally touched the buoyant form, and for a moment it seemed to swirl after me. A few hobbled steps past the body, I noticed high up on the wall of the drain, in a large patch of white, a large red stain. Quite near this was a small squarish object, which had been wedged, apparently with some deliberation, into a gap between two bricks. It was dry, and dirt shook loose as I dislodged it. It proved to be a kind of homemade journal, with a cover of some untanned hide. As I balanced on one leg in the water... I held the book up to that patch of sunset and turned a few pages. They were covered with symbols and diagrams of vaguely cabalistic fashion. While the text was a mixture of Latin, which I read with ease, and German, a language with which I was quite unfamiliar, it took me a moment to realize what I held. But when I did, my hands were once more trembling, not with fear or cold, but with excitement, for this was the old man's grimoire his book of magic and mysteries. The surprise of this find made me forget for the nonce my pain and my situation. It even dulled my ears to the approaching sounds overhead. 
and I was only reminded of my peril when a scatter of dead leaves fell from above. Holding the book aloft, I dropped as low as possible, letting the water come up to my neck, listening intently, and peering up with fright renewed. Everything was so quiet up there now. No birdsong, no wind, certainly no slow footsteps, which I now realized I had been hearing, as I had been busy puzzling over the old man's grimoire. Then a new sound arose, the sound of breathing, heavy and labored. I kept my eyes fixed above, hoping against hope to see at any second the cemetery ranger and deliverance. But in reality, I expected nothing less than that some horror would suddenly push its face over the edge and stare down into the drain, seeing me even in the dark, because with the sound had come a smell, an animal musk at once sickening and sweet. It was only with great effort that I did not retch. Again, I looked above. The breathing was now so loud and near, I thought surely the creature must be almost on top of me. And with the breathing, and with the smell, came the sound of nails or talons scraping on the brickwork, and the ornamental terracotta urns, causing fine particles of dust to sift down against my face. As I loved life, I crouched as still and as silent and as low as possible, so that my chin now touched the water. And as it did so, something in turn touched me softly on the back of the head. That I did not betray myself by crying aloud or leaping from the water cannot be attributed to courage, because by now I had none. But to my greater fear of that which lurked above, yet even in my fright, I knew what was bumping into me, that it had floated quietly down behind me in the drain water. But in the present situation, I could not move, and so it stayed there, all buoyant and bleeding and pressing against me. The scraping sound moved away along the top of the drain. A shadow flickered across the fading daylight above and was as quickly gone. I sat there in the water with quiet hope growing. Then terror returned, stronger than before, as something splashed heavily into the water upstream. The wave rounded the curve of the drain and hit the old man's body, pushing it forcibly forward, so that the gaping, bloody hole in its back almost rode over me. I eased myself up on my one good foot and leaned against the wall, casting a despairing glance backwards. The powerful musk of wild animals now filled the close air, the time to hide was over. The time to run had come, as around the curve stalked a grotesque form, a composite of grave clothes, leaves and branches, sticks from the grave markers of the poor, black crow plumage, rabbit and fox fur, and the hides of goats and cats caught in the cemetery grounds. The head lolled on its broken neck, and its eye sockets were two snakes tightly coiled. The face was grave dirt, held together by blood, roughly modelled into the hateful, leering countenance of Everton, and I guessed with horrible conviction as to where the old man's insides had gone. The thing lurched forward with its huge arms reaching, flailing its claws it had wrenched from the unfortunate animals. Its lips parted to bare teeth, chipped from marble tombstones in a leer all too familiar. At once, I found a use for my limbs, jumping up and slapping my hands against the wall, but terrible pain flashed 
from my ankle, and next thing, I was falling. I hit the water and went under, surfacing an instant later, coughing out a mouthful of crimson water, gagging on its vile taste. I struggled to my feet again, in an utter panic, for I was sure Everton must be now upon me. However, Everton, in his roughly fashioned body, was a cumbersome thing, moving with halting, ungainly motions. This, coupled with the fact he was momentarily impeded by the old man's body, floating lengthways between us, gave me a few seconds' grace. Hobbling as fast as I could, I put distance between myself and the horror, finding more drooping willow branches a few yards on, and clambering up them far more agilely than I would have in my sane mind. Fear spurred me on, with an animal need to escape. As I dragged my body over the edge of the drain, something caught at my ankle. I kicked free and tumbled forward onto the red bricks, to lie panting in the blessed air. For the moment I was safe, but for how long? Darkness was falling quickly, and the grounds, I was sure, would be deserted by this time. The willow branches behind me began to sag and shake. I picked myself up and, favoring my injured ankle whose pain I was again mindful, limped off in the direction I happened to be facing. Within seconds I was amongst the tombstones, cutting a zigzag path through them as fast as I could. The light was all but gone now, and dusk brought with it a chill, exasperated by my wet clothes, which weighed heavily upon me. Also, the shoe on my good foot so squelched that I was certain it could be heard a full mile away. I snagged myself on bushes, bumped into marble, and barked my shin on stone. I had come only a few yards from the drain, and my progress was becoming almost literally a crawl. One of the several wicker and trellis work shelters dotted around Rookwood Cemetery offered momentary refuge, like the hunted animal I now felt to be. I listened keenly, over my grasping breath, for any crunch of gravel or snap of twig. But no sound came to my straining ears. I set about taking off my shoes, letting water pour from them like teapots, before inspecting my injured ankle with my fingers. They told a tale of awful swelling. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
The stars had come out, shining icy sharp. The moon, too, was out, gibbous in the east. I pushed back deep into the darkness of the shelter, and for the first time, since I was flung into this nightmare, began thinking rationally. I foresaw difficulties for myself, burdened as I was with sodden clothing and feeling damnably cold as the chill of night gripped me. I would surely freeze to death before long. That is if Everton did not catch me first. The ranger's house, whatever distance and direction it may be, and if I could find it, would surely be my only chance of surviving this night. I doffed my coat, for it was far too heavy for the possible chase I had before me. But as I dragged my arms through its sleeves, something fell with a soft bump at my feet. It took but a moment blind search to find it. The old man's book of magic. My fingers ran over its raw hide. The last I remembered of it was holding it above my head as I cowered in the water. I had evidently pushed the thing into my coat when I heard Everton splash into the drain. Odd how the mind works in moments of extremity, though whether in this instance for good or ill, I could not say. Perhaps Everton had killed the old man for more than his internal organs. All grimoires, I knew, contained the potential for good and evil, possibly some dabbling by the old man pursuing some magic with which to impress me, had brought Everton back from the grave in elementary form which, with natural cunning, he had built upon. The book was a tool of unimaginable power, a fact doubtless realized by Everton. For all his brutality, he was not stupid. But then, neither was I. Leaving the shelter, I draped my coat over a tall stone, then left my shoes on the path in such a manner as to suggest flight towards the nearest part of the high brick wall. It was a simple trick, but one I thought would work, for I felt Everton's abiding weakness would be to underestimate this bookish clerk who had been a passive holidaymaker aboard his ship. The idea of him gaining the knowledge this book contained was nigh on unthinkable, and if I had had a match at that moment, I would have endeavoured to burn the thing, but I had no match. So, I did the next best thing, and hugged the old man's book close, and hobbled my slow barefoot way, deep into the burial ground. I hoped to find either a main path, or the railway line, from which I could orientate myself, and possibly spot the lights of the ranger's house. Failing that, perhaps I too could work magic. Short of finding human help, it might be, I well knew, my only hope of deliverance. I alternatively hobbled and crawled along the dark byways, of that nighted necropolis, every so often stopping to listen for sounds of pursuit. My throat was sore, after gagging on the bloody water of the drain, and a slight hunger was making my head feel light. I had not eaten since leaving the ship that morning. Silence. Absolute quiet. The night was as dead as I hoped were those who lay beneath me. The moon rode high, through the naked branches of the scattered trees, shining down its light so that white marble crosses and obelisks and slabs glowed everywhere like ice. I shivered in my wet clothes, feeling absolutely wretched. Only the feeling of the book beneath my shirt kept me going, gave me hope, although I had no real plan. I was beginning to lose the initiative I had displayed. Could it have been only a bare half-hour before? It seemed like hours 
My brain had grown numb with intense weariness. This is why only gradually did I realize the significance of what I had been smelling for one minute's past. Smoke. At once I perked up. Could the ranger's house be somewhere near? Visions of safety and warmth danced in my cheered mind. Risking detection, I clambered upon a high slab and, bouncing on the toe of my good foot, searched the dark horizon for the chance of a light. I saw it then, a faint red flicker far off to the east where the bush still grew wild in unclaimed land, not westward towards the older ground where I'd expected the ranger's house to be. Nevertheless, I made my hobbling way towards it. The light I soon found was not the ranger's house at all. Rather, it was a rude hut made of ill-fitting planks and stones scrounged or stolen from the masonry yard which surround Rookwood Cemetery. The light came from a spluttering oil lamp hung in the window. The smell of smoke came from within. I entered to find the smoldering embers of a fire in the middle of the earthen floor. To one side, a bit of straw and rags constituted the only furniture. To the other, a pile of what I at first took to be building debris and litter. Marks had been made in the dirt by the fire, symbols of an arcane nature. Rough, but recognizable. This, I guessed, was the old man's hut, and that it was here he had worked his foolish magic. As I took up the lamp to study the floor markings in detail, its fitful light glittered on objects in the rubbish pile, revealing them for what they really were. Garments of thin cotton, brass fittings from molested coffins, pieces of jewellery which were mostly rings, and scattering the bones which were mostly finger joints. Old ghoul! I cried. I built up the fire from a nearby heap of kindling. The warmth was balm to my cold and tired body, and the sight of the growing flame revived my intention to destroy the grimoire. But I could not now bring myself to do so. Did I really believe for an instant that Everton would abandon his intentions upon me at the destruction of the book? It would simply switch his motivation to revenge. Besides, the grimoire might well be my only weapon against him. As quickly as possible, I completed the change into dry things from the heap of grave clothes. Putting on three pairs of thin trousers and several shirts to keep me warm, I had dried myself on a linen sheet of good quality, which had probably served some rich man as a shroud. Torn into strips, it served me now as a bandage for my ankle and as protection for my feet from the stony ground. It was a disappointment to learn that my magical hermit was nothing more than a grave robber. However, this in all likelihood explained the book. Magic had been loose this night, and I wondered if the owner of the book, perchance a wizard who now lay somewhere out in the necropolis, was as unhappy with its misuse as I was afeard of its consequences. I took it up and opened it at random. The moon shone through the window and aided the uncertain rays of the dying lamp. I beheld pages of symbols and diagrams, some of them similar to those by the fire. The text was in both Latin and German, and having knowledge of the former, I risked a moment to linger and read what was there, to see what secrets might be revealed. Cave quidesis, it began, which I read as, Beware what you say. Then, Ort non tentaris ort perfica. Do it right or do it not at all which brought back to my mind the old man's mistake. 
Know the lion by his claws and the lightning by its power. Treat their coming as a thing of complex and delicate laws, of hidden meaning and of a thousand potent subtleties of sound, rhythm, colour and force. Ye shall know their presence by the harnessed lightning which proceeds. Something very far away went thud, as of some great weight falling. I froze with the book in my hands, my heart beating madly, my eyes darting to left and right, my ears straining for the tiniest sound. But nothing further came, and there I stood in the middle of this intense silence. I looked down at the words I had read. Something about them triggered thoughts to spiral around in my mind. I began to feel strange, and not a little uneasy at the passage I had, foolishly, spoken aloud. Cave quid desis, beware what you say. I read no more but closed the book again, and placed it within the folds of my grave clothes. Leaves rustled somewhere close by. I flattened myself against the hot wall, expecting to see the hideous face of Everton peer in at me. But it was only a rat, which skittered in at the doorway. Hesitating, it raised itself on its back legs to sniff the air. It must have sensed me. For as quickly as it had entered, it turned with a flick of its tail and scuttled out again. I took this as a warning to move, while I still had the chance. I might not be so lucky with the hut's next visitor. The way the rat had sensed my presence started me thinking, could the creature that was Everton smell me out? Sense me in an animal way? If so, could I not disguise myself using like cunning? Picking up my damp clothes, I squeezed some of the water from them and rubbed it onto my face and neck and across the front of my shirt. I pulled up grass and scooped handfuls of dirt to rub across my exposed skin, between my fingers and over my feet. Wild flowers growing close by bled their juice between thumb and forefinger, and this too I wiped into my hair and across my shirt. Satisfied, I was blending into the very countryside and that even a dog now could not tell me from the foliage of Rookwood. I struck out from the hut with a pain in my ankle, lessening. Know that the whole earth is one living thing, be it many parts that go to make the whole. It breathes as you and I. So too does it give new life, after taking old again unto its bosom, for to return to the soil from which all that lives doth spring. But also know ye, that not all life is benign. They, who could be sought through the sigils and words herein, would tempt you to that place, where the skin creaks and groans under the mighty sun, contracting and expanding with elastic precision. It is this mire, with its terrible surface, ready to swallow you into its stomach, and for the skin to close over your head with terrifying finality. I looked up from the book. Rookwood lay like a sleeping city of towers and streets, still and quiet in the moonlight. No man-sized shadow stalked its path, although some moments before I had seen some large lump of flickering light moving far beyond too many monuments to be certain. I crouched again behind the tombstone and resumed reading, hoping to make some sense of it. When you are as an animal and have taken the scent of the earth upon you, and have become one with the primal woods, you need must say these words. I sat bolt upright and reread that passage. I had covered myself with the essence of the earth, 
and had become one with it. I had done what the book had bid me do. Perhaps that was it. Perhaps this was the key to ridding myself of the thing that was Everton. Without going as far as he, I had altered myself to become more one with the earth. Perhaps I had found a way to fight back. Dum spiro spero. While there is breath, there is hope. My hearing had grown acute with the chase, causing me to jump and hide at any tiny noise. Now the sound of gravel underfoot came to me from close by. I made myself small behind the stone and peered around it with one wide, fearful eye. A figure stood less than ten paces from me, grey and indistinct in the moonlight. It seemed to be sniffing the night air. But was it Everton or the ranger? When it went down on all fours, growling and sniffing at the ground like a dog, all doubt fled. Everton sprang to his feet, chuckling, and I could see in my mind's eye his gape-toothed leer as he tore off to the old man's hut, with the oddly-shaped head bobbing brokenly. It was time for me to move. The old man had said that some see fog filling the holes and hollows and the wicker shelters, and some see shapes moving edgewise and mightily, and some see the sneaking railway lines all aglow in the midnight. I had as yet not seen the first two, but as I now came upon the railway lines, I saw that they were indeed glowing with a strange pale light. Possibly it was an effect of the moon, now nearing its zenith, but I was no longer ready to jump to logical explanations. I walked alongside the rail, hopeful in the knowledge that it would soon lead me out of this place of unrelieved horror. The entrance, or at least the safety of the ranger's house, would be less than a half-mile away. Everton, I was sure, was following a scent leading nowhere far back in the bush, and with a little bit of luck, he might stay there. Hopelessly lost. But luck, I remembered, was something that had been in short supply most of the night, and so I put on pace, favouring my bound ankle in a kind of skip-step. Presently, I came within sight of the sandstone arches of Mortuary Station Number 1, looming dark and bulky in the night. Somewhere over to my left, the moon glinted on the highest dome of the church-like tomb of Mr. Hoffman. His Germanic name made me recall the German texts in the grimoire. Had it originally been his? Undoubtedly, there were several of German background buried here, but Mr. Hoffman, who owned much in life, and in death does not think different, was more likely than most. As I stepped into the moon shadow of Mortuary Station, there came again a thud somewhere in the grounds, and now closer at hand. I look wildly about, and for an instant glimpsed something flash amidst the stones of the middle distance. It had been too strong, and too strange to be a ranger's lantern, so I ran as best I could into the tunnel of the station, into its welcoming dark, smelling faintly of coal smoke, machinery oil, and pine coffins. I felt my way along the edge of the platform, which was at head height. At every step I feared my hands would touch something, but they touched nothing but hard sandstone, and any ghosts this station had kept to themselves. I was loath to leave its depths at the other end, for I could hear stone cracking somewhere in the night, and too much open ground lay before me along the track. So I struck out for the nearest graves, 
I had not gone far into them, however, when I saw again the light, caught in flashes as it moved through the granite and marble maze of Rookwood. This time, it was heading and approaching. I turned and fled, seeking again the dark safety of the mortuary station. But which way? As the stones hid me, so they hid all. I hobbled in a growing panic hither and thither, searching for its bulky outlines against the night sky. I found instead Hoffman's tomb. From not so far behind came the sound of splintering rock. I swung about and peered across the moonlight cemetery. The crashing came again, somewhat nearer now. Though I could still see nothing but that distant and momentary light which made some of the shadowy stones stand out in brief silhouette. I wasted no time pondering this, however, but almost without thought opened the iron gate of the tomb and limped up the path to its marble portal. That its great doors opened at my touch came as a small surprise. It was, in truth, a circumstance that fueled my surmise that this was indeed from whence the book had been stolen. I entered the tomb. Moonlight struck through the high, narrow windows so that all but thin strips of the stone floor were in shadow. I pushed the door shut, and its banging echoed round and round, finally muttering off into the vaulted darkness above. I groped about the circular wall, not knowing what I might find. After a few steps I felt an edge, and in the dimness decried a niche within which lay the oblong of a coffin, with its lid upraised. I did not investigate further, but continued along the wall, at intervals finding further niches with similar contents. All the while my feet had been finding other things, sometimes things soft like rags, and sometimes things that were hard and clattered. The old man had been most untidy. Be not afraid, young master, said his voice in the dark. I stood upright against the wall as something insubstantial shuffled into one of the narrow strips of moonlight. A figure of milky, mingling aspect shaped only vaguely like a man. Fear is what they feed upon. In my bravest voice I said, Old man, will you help me? I know not, young master. You must find it within yourself. I could not help myself when the time came. The tomb was plunged into momentary darkness as the moon's thin light was obliterated, then at once returned. They come, said the old man without his usual cackle. What? I asked. And it's your doing. My doing, I said. But Everton was not my... No, not he. He is already here. They are nearing, coming to your call. The tomb door began to swing inward. The smell reached me first, that repulsive animal musk I had known in the drain. As much as I wanted to hide my face, I stared in horrified fascination at the awful form of Everton filling the doorway. His head lolling on one shoulder, he lurched into a strip of light. Those eyes of coiled snakes were regarding me and the ghost of the hermit in turns. That hated leer broadened, and Everton began to advance a dead shuffle across the stone floor. I screamed and looked frantically about for some weapon, but what little light struck into the tomb offered no hope. I cried, Take it! Take your accused book! And like a wretched coward flung the grimoire at the monster. 
But he ignored the book, letting it fall into the dark as he continued his approach. At once I felt a stab of shame, and it was then I remembered the grisly object my feet had kicked. Perhaps there might be a bone I could use as a club. It was, I knew, the only thing that might save me. Yet, I could do nothing about it. Everton's slow creep toward me, grinning all the while, was robbing me of all power to act, overfilling my brain with a fear so intense I could think of nothing else. The ghost of the hermit slid between us, waving insubstantial arms, obscuring Everton from sight and breaking the spell. Before Everton could push through the apparition, I dropped to the floor and scrambled about, searching for something, anything. My fingers brushed against the bone, but in finding it, I had knocked it away, and my clutching hand found only emptiness. At that instant, another clutching hand found me, and I was wrenched violently upward. My thin, grave clothes saved me, ripping and shredding like paper in Everton's hands. I dropped to the floor and rolled sideways, by happy chance, knocking Everton off his feet. Then all was confusion and darkness as the monster fell and I scrambled on the floor, amongst dead things. A moment more and my feet were under me again. I leapt, running, as I did so. The voice of the ghost was in my ears, saying, They are here! And, They know! And, Don't run! That last was surely ill advice, for I could do nothing but run, what with Everton at my heels. But what awaited me without the tomb door brought me to a skidding halt in the dirt, and my mind to the bellowing borders of madness. It oozed in the air before me, a grey and oily cloud partly wrapped and anchored about the tomb, like an immense snake, a thickly flowing river of all the sickliness and ghastliness in the world. It was vague, and shot through with strokes of chain lightning, flashing and flashing back and forth across that expanse of unctuous cloud, illuming all about like the very noonday, and all in the most deadliest of silences. Now, from out the tomb rushed Everton, who likewise stopped. Twisting his broken neck upwards, he beheld this greater enormity. His eternal leer turned to a grimace of fear, and the red raw earth of his face cracked as his jaw stretched agape. A strange smell, as of decomposition, as of burning, smote the air. And following hard on this, the silence was broken by someone crying in despair. It was I. Rapid, distorted images flashed through my cringing consciousness, limbs of smoke extruding from the thing and reaching down. A thing that was indeed my doing, as the hermit had said. By reading from the grimoire, by covering myself with dirt and vegetation, and becoming one with the earth, by striving to instigate something and succeeding all too well. With greater ignorance than that displayed by the old man, I had called this horror into existence and knew not how to control it. Be not afraid, said the voice of the hermit. All right for him, for he was already dead. The smoky arms closed in and I began choking, as if upon my deathbed. Fear is their fodder, and their spore. Think sweet thoughts. It is not easy to think sweet thoughts as death engulfs you in so macabre a fashion. 
Yet I continued to tell myself that I was not afraid. Continued to trust in ghosts. The sea voyage I had taken came desperately to mind. The sparkling sea, the fair winds and blue skies, the smell of salt in the air, the sound of rope lashing men's backs as Everton. No! My book cataloging work, the musty dust smell of old bindings, the feeling of accomplishment, the dreary hours, the workload, the guttering candles and eye strain. No, tomorrow, sunrise, survival, life, dum spiro, sparrow. While there is breath, there is hope. The cloud lifted. It flowed over me like a river over a rock. It stretched, it oozed, it massed towards Everton. Everton, who knew only base emotions and rejoiced only in cruelty, who could not count on life, for he possessed now only a counterfeit shadow of it, conjured accidentally, who had no hope, for there was no breath but that within his stolen lungs, and that stale and stinking. And so he began to back away, gurgling with what he had for a mouth. He stumbled, turned and ran. At once the cloud took on a more substantial form and pursued and overtook him. The coiled snakes embedded in his eye sockets reared out to strike and strike again at the empty air, all to no avail. More of the huge shadow unwound itself from the tomb and stretched down, ever down. Everton kept backing away, still whimpering and snarling in a deep, watery voice, until brought up hard against the marble wall of the tomb. The shadow, solid now, and dark, rapidly formed into a nightmare shape, a tangle of embroiling darkness in which Everton could be seen only through momentary gaps. And in each one he was opening his mouth in mute agony as the air about him flickered. With appalling abruptness and an almost human cry of utmost fear, he was wrenched into the air and dragged kicking, jerking into the thunderhead of that terrible cloud, jerked upward and inside, but not quite out of sight, for the cloud flickering with his own unnatural lightning afforded intermittent views of its interior. Everton, this monster of composite parts, this abomination, was being unraveled. Grave clothes and shrouds, sticks and branches were flung to the winds. The animal hides peeling off, whirling away and adding their stink to the air. Reptile scales fell like sparkling rain and black crow plumage fluttered. Two snakes unbound, slithered into the grass with lightning gleaming on their fangs. And all that remained was a ball of grave dirt bonded with blood, which, as I watched, burst apart like a ripe tomato. Litter and the strewn guts of the old hermit lay tangled in the dirt outside the tomb. Night once more fell upon the cemetery, and darkness, blessed darkness, fell upon me. Just before dawn I was found, wide-eyed and gibbering, by the cemetery ranger. Later that morning I struggled from my sickbed, in the ranger's house, to the Hoffman's tomb, to search for the book. It was not to be found. The same can also be said for the old man's insides, and for his body, which was not in the serpentine drain. The morning I saw again the shade of Mr. Hoffman peering from the high windows of his tomb. Not now in stern disapproval, but in anger and fear. And not down at me or at newcomers to the cemetery, 
but to the eastward, where the wild scrubland spreads out, it seems forever. Here, sometimes an old man is glimpsed, stalking the bush, cackling and gesticulating, while reading from a volume he understands, but poorly. That was Rick Kennett and Bryce Stevens' Rookwood, as read by the Taleteller from the Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales podcast. Producing episodes every single weekday just for your lovely ears. It covers no sleep, secure contained protect, true horror stories, old-time radio episodes, creepypasta, paranormal, and so much more. The stories you listen to there are always unique and different. The podcast also focuses on turning listeners into authors. Many of the stories you hear there are actually submitted by listeners of the show, empowering others to start their creative writing journey. Feel free to drop them an email at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com with your own stories and suggestions. And you can find the show on any podcast catcher or Google by searching Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales podcast. Thank you, Taleteller. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon, via the link in the show notes, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we disturb your mind with more Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.